Hi! Hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That led me, an evangelical in my early 20s, into a deep dive into the history of my faith into the Bible, the biblical canon, into the history of the the early church up through the Reformation and beyond. It was in that journey I encountered the Catholic faith. It looms large there in church history, and it was unavoidable. And as I began reading from actual Catholic sources about what Catholics actually believed, I realized what I knew, what what I thought I knew about Catholics, was based in large part on misinformation and more often than not on simple misunderstandings. Well, this show serves to fill in that same gap, the gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week I have a real Catholic conversation with real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here, and this week is an absolute doozy. I am joined by Father Jeffrey Kirby to talk about suffering, how to suffer as a Catholic. There is such a rich tradition of suffering in the Catholic Church that really, as a convert, I had no idea about. Truly, as as a non-Catholic Christian, I didn't know what to make of suffering sometimes. It felt like God would had abandoned me, it felt like I had done something wrong, I, had, I hadn't prayed enough, I hadn't read my Bible enough, I wasn't spiritual enough. These are things that I, I heard, answers that were offered to me by, by well-meaning pastors and friends as I was a younger evangelical Christian. And it was when I became Catholic, I entered into this tradition, this rich, rich history of suffering what it means, what it does to us, how we should respond to it. These questions and, and many more, the, the, the fall, sin, all these fantastic, really rich topics are covered this week in my conversation with Father Jeffrey Kirby. It's a really in-depth, really fantastic conversation. And we really had fun talking about suffering because it is. It's an enlivening discussion to realize that there is this tradition, there is this church that upholds you and, and that we can join our suffering with Christ. And, and oh man, it's really great theology. It's really good stuff. I, I think you'll love this conversation. This conversation and all others are brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic and our one-time sponsors or donors at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. And I have two of those to thank this week. So thank you to Kathleen and thank you to Carolina for your fantastic, one-time, very generous support of the show. You guys help this thing to keep going and to keep growing week after week and to help me to reach more people with this thing. So, thank you. If you want to be a supporter of the show, head over to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic or paypal.me slash cordialcatholic, and those links are also in the show notes as well. And now, without any further ado, here's my fantastic conversation with Father Jeffrey Kirby on how to suffer like a Catholic. Please listen and enjoy. Hey friends, welcome back to the show. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. If you are watching us on YouTube, thank you. Uh, we're also on podcasts. Everywhere fine and not so fine podcasts are found. If you're listening to us on podcasts, well, hey, we're also on YouTube to watch what you are hearing 
at youtube.com slash thecordialcatholic. Please head over there and subscribe and like the videos so others find them as well. I am joined by a returning guest this week on the show. Happy to have him back. It's Father Jeffrey Kirby. He is a, a prolific author, has some fantastic books out there. He's a moral theologian, a papal missionary of mercy, and pastor of Our Lady of Grace Parish in Indian Land, South Carolina. He's a senior contributor at the Crux News website, and he is our our return guest this week to talk about suffering. What a fun topic. Thank you, Father, for being here. Welcome back and hello. Good to be on the show. Thank you. Uh, it's not a super exciting topic to, to talk about, but an important one. Uh, as you know, you've got this uh, new book out, A Manual for Suffering, which is fantastic. Uh, it's it's We can talk about it at, at the end. You can tell people where they can find it, but it's a, a beautiful little Really, really gorgeous little book. Uh, really well put together. I was really impressed when it when it came, uh, and uh, everyone in the family wanted to see it and, and hold it. And, and the kids were like, "Oh, what is this? It looks so cool, Dad!" That's what suffering kids. It's about suffering. So hopefully, <laughs> you don't need it anytime soon. <laughs> it looks fantastic, and I want to talk to you about it. It's a fantastic topic. I want to begin kind of maybe on a, on a grandiose scale and just ask you for your thoughts on the idea of suffering because. This is one of those things that, for whatever reason, people go through, and our, our, our instinct, whether we're Catholic, whether we're non-Catholic Christian, whether we're Buddhist, or whether we're Hindu, or of no religion whatsoever, everyone seems to turn to a greater power when they are suffering, and they go, why? Why is this happening to me? What, what do you think that... that comes from it, it's always that turning out and turning up and going why why we don't do the same thing when we win the lottery or when we you know when something great happens to us or or, or we have a, a a great day it's not suffering that we look to that higher power and go why why so so father why <laughs> why yeah, do we do that <laughs> yes yeah, so I, I think uh similar to what you're saying is that you know, when we suffer it, it strikes at our at our core and our you know very essence and our existential being. It, it can rock us, shake us. It also shows us our vulnerability that all the answers that we thought we had or that we thought we could trust in or the self-autonomy we thought that was so assured, suddenly all that just begins to fade away. And instead we're we're left with these very deep questions of very real suffering. And oftentimes we begin to look outside of ourselves because there's nothing left in terms of the answers that we've given ourselves or the answers that we thought we had confidence in or the answers that we thought would sustain us in difficulty. Again, they simply fade away. It's like a house of cards that just fall. And instead we begin to ask questions. Well, if the answers aren't from me, if I can't give these answers to myself, then where are these answers? Like where can I find the meaning, the purpose, the value of this suffering? Why is this happening to me? Uh, what, what what's going on? And then as you were describing, it just forces us out of ourselves because in many respects, we see the vulnerability of ourselves, perhaps for some, for the first time. Yeah, I, I love that framed that way. It's that vulnerability that I don't have the answers, right? I don't. I can't rely on myself suddenly to, if I'm having a, if I'm having a good day, well, oh, I've done something right. That's great. I've, I've done this right thing and I feel good about myself. But suddenly when you are out of control like that, that's something that that you look for what what is causing this or what is what is controlling this, right? In some greater purpose. That's yeah, I love that. Yes, 
Yes, yes, absolutely. And it is powerful, even for believers, as you, as you were describing, that oftentimes that, you know, suffering can be a great opportunity in which their faith is, is renewed or perhaps takes on a, a life that was unimaginable before. I think of the uh, great Catholic convert, Malcolm Muggeridge, uh, the great journalist who, of course, told us the story of Mother Teresa, uh, was, a, was a Stalinist until he visited the Soviet Union, and then I wasn't sure what his life meant until he met Teresa of Calcutta, and then you know, as he's describing his conversion to Catholicism, he says, like, first of all, he wasn't looking for God. He didn't think he needed a God. He goes on later to, to say that the best teacher he ever had was suffering. It was a teacher he didn't want, the teacher he wasn't seeking, but in suffering he learned more than anything else that anything else could, could possibly teach him. And so he was grateful, actually, for the sufferings he went through because then he, was, he was able to realize how much God had been searching for him the entire time and, and wanted this relationship with him. So that's one Christian's uh, testimony account that I think so many of us can relate to. It's oftentimes in our suffering that that's what we want to get. We want to get closed in on ourselves. I can handle this. I can do this. Uh, I will get through this. I can white knuckle this. And all that's taken away in suffering. And then eventually we just have to say, well, the only teacher left is suffering to realize that I don't really have the energy to pursue God or the God question right now. But then suddenly to realize, well, God has actually been pursuing me. And suffering is a path I would not have chosen, the path I did not want, but the sure path in which I could encounter him. And the the, the teaching happens in, in everything is stripped away, right? And you have no nowhere else to go, nothing else to do. So I guess you learn to begin to rely on God, right? I guess through in prayer and you, you begin to, uh, yeah, I love that. When you, you, when you can't seek him, you realize that he is seeking you. So, mm. so how would you talk about suffering as, uh, as a teacher in that way? I mean, I've mentioned yeah. a couple of things here that I'm, I'm thinking in my own life, how that would work. I, you know, I, I lose something great, and I'm 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 woebegone, and I come to God in prayer and say, "Lord, I I want this thing back. But if not this thing, then something else. Like help me and teach me." So I know in my own life through suffering, I've I turn I I have turned in my better times to prayer to God and, and grown closer in that way. Is that how suffering can teach us, or is there is there more to unpack there? Yes, yes, I I, I very much like what you're saying. If I could maybe just clarify uh, for some who might not understand the depth of, of what you're describing. You know, we say that when we're suffering, we turn to prayer. And, and understandably, people might think, oh, well, that's when you begin to have this conversation with God and you start to speak to God. And, and that's certainly one form of prayer. But oftentimes when someone is just tremendously suffering and then their life is just completely falling apart and uh, they just don't know what's going on, and our souls share in the suffering of our bodies. So if, 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 we're, if we're wore out even physically from suffering— uh, then our, our souls participate that. If our suffering is emotional or moral, then certainly the soul participates. So there's just this exhaustion, this existential exhaustion, where we describe prayer in the midst of suffering. It's not necessarily, oh, now I'm finally I turn to God, we're having this nice little chit-chat and, and so on. You know, sometimes the deepest form of prayer is, I just know that I'm not alone, and there's someone else with me, and I'm just, I don't even have the strength to even speak but I know that I'm with someone else on a level that I could never have imagined. 
And I would argue that is actually the deepest form of prayer. I mean, you know, we look at the spiritual life and the ultimate goal of prayer is union with God, right? The unitive way we describe it in ascetical theology. And yet in suffering, we almost like fast forward through all of this, you know, ascetical practices. And, and instead, having been given the ultimate asceticism of the suffering we didn't want, we try to get away from, and yet suddenly it's just sitting there in the dark with no answers and just knowing I'm not alone. And suddenly that hope or that understanding of presence or relationship dispels the fear and gives us a confidence that is far beyond anything we could or any confidence we could ever give ourselves. And that I think is the lesson that, that prayer ultimately teaches us. You know, some time ago I was reading an article and said that the one consistent religious experience that is found in all of the religious traditions, as you were describing, the Buddhist, the Hindu, the Christian, and so on, that the one consistent religious experience can be summarized as the awareness that it's going to be okay. I don't know how, I don't know where or why, I, I have no answers, but I just have this profound existential, way beyond feelings, awareness that it's going to be okay. And that's an awareness that is oftentimes given in the midst of suffering. And so I think that when we describe prayer, it's like, yes, like suffering is a teacher because it leads us to prayer, but to provide that holistic answer to prayer, that it's not simply this conversation, but sometimes it's beyond the conversation because perhaps our suffering is so, so severe that the idea of even trying to have a conversation with anyone uh, is seems impossible. And so it's, again, it just comes down to that awareness that, I am not alone, and somehow in ways I don't know, uh, this is going to be okay. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And that, that strikes me as the goal of, of the spiritual life in so many ways. You say this, this suffering jumpstarts or, or skips all those kind of practices and takes you right to that relationship with God. I, I think of the idea of, which is big for me, the idea of, of being docile to the Holy Spirit, being being able to kind of be just a, just a, a leaf in the breeze, right? Where God wants to send me, you know, I want to be so able to respond to the to the, the the breath of the Holy Spirit that I'll just blow with that current. And I think suffering, in a sense, strips you down to that. You have nothing left, or you know, you've lost something so significant, or you're going through something such an ordeal that you really don't have the energy to 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 resist or to fight anymore, or to, or to assert your own will, whether you don't have the, the means sometimes to even do that, depending on what kind of suffering you're, you're going through, that strikes me as a pretty docile place to be, a pretty play, a good place to be receptive to what God has to bring to you or give to you, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, when we don't find ourselves in you know suffering that's been given to us, then really one could argue that the whole of the ascetical life is to take on an aspect of suffering, yeah. you know, fasting or abnegation and so on, in order to both prepare the soul for suffering that might come, but also to draw closer to God. Because we're stripping ourselves of the ease, the comfort, the control, and instead refusing or denying something in order to experience an aspect of suffering. But when suffering is given to us that we weren't looking for, we had no control over uh, suddenly, you know, the the path of the spiritual life, as, as we're describing, gets fast forwarded. I think it's great. St. Francis de Sales, one of our spiritual masters, who wrote the introduction of devout life. He says that the penance that is not chosen is the penance that is more beneficial. Because it's easy to say, 
uh, I'm not going to have a soft drink tomorrow for penance, or I'm not going to have any salt on my food this day, you know, today or something. But then all of a sudden there's a salt shortage. (laughs) (laughs) And we have no control over that, you know, and, uh, and that actually becomes more beneficial because we lose any aspect to even control the penance that we have. And I think suffering is certainly that. So the person who goes and, and, and hears that they're diagnosed with cancer or uh, are told that you know, someone no longer wants to be in a relationship with them and their heart is completely not just broken but shattered. Or the parent who is praying and grieving that their adult child might finally overcome whatever addiction they might have and so on, right? I mean, let's go on. Like, when we talk about suffering, it's physical, absolutely, but also emotional, it's spiritual, it's moral, uh, it's our own, it's it's the suffering we have because we love other people, we have that empathy, we share in their suffering. Uh, so, you know, there's this diversity of suffering that we have to acknowledge. And each suffering that we have is given, we're given an opportunity to become bitter or better, right? So Teresa of Avila says, uh, in a fallen world, we can either embrace the cross or be dragged by it. So the choice is ours. And we've seen that where, where suffering has embittered people, angered people, right? because it provokes their entire sense of entitlement. And they are just angry. I've seen people die angry, horrific, absolutely horrific. Right? The closest thing to hell I can imagine. And yet that is not what God wants for us. Suffering is permitted to consequence of sin, our own and the original sin of our first parents. And it's given to us as an opportunity as a teacher. So we can accept that, embrace the cross. And by the workings of grace, be taught profound lessons that we could never have imagined beforehand. Yeah, I want to unpack that a bit more too with you because this is a uniquely, uh, in my experience, a very uniquely Catholic thing. You know, this this show is is it's watched by, listened to by lots of non-Catholic Christians who are discerning the Catholic faith or looking into becoming Catholic, who are who are new converts or who are wanting to dig deeper into their faith. And one thing that I I certainly encountered when I was becoming Catholic, and many have said this too, is this rich tradition of suffering that we simply didn't have. I didn't have this in my evangelical church that's growing up. I didn't have this in my non-denominational church. I I have letters and emails from people who say the same thing, that they didn't have a a framework for suffering, right? And and it could sometimes actually, Father, be a a bad framework if they had one. It could be, well, you're suffering because you've done done this wrong thing. God's punishing you. Or you aren't praying hard enough for the suffering to go away. Or you aren't aren't reading your Bible enough or you wouldn't suffer. Like These are also things that take the place of a good framework for suffering. But, But I think the Catholic Church, in this rich tradition, this rich, rich, rich history that goes back to the very, very beginning, has this rich tradition of, of suffering that really explains what it is and what it's for and what, what we ought to do with it. And you've unpacked a bit of that already, but is that safe to say that's true? Yes, yes, yes. I, I, and I, I'm very glad to hear you say that because my experience has been, um, just as a priest, I'm, I'm, I'm a, a cradle Catholic, but um, in dealing with, with converts and, and seeing to go through the, watching them and, and accompanying them in the conversion process, uh, it has been the theology of redemptive suffering that has very much moved yeah, people yeah, yeah. and attracted them to the Catholic Church. I think our teachings on intrinsic justification is kind of wrestling match in our souls of, between pride and grace that, you know, and there can be a, an authentic, you know, sanctification of internal holiness that, that's achieved by the cooperation of grace opens up the possibility of redemptive suffering that I can actually take my suffering and unite it with the suffering of Christ. 
and in that have an intimacy with Christ that I could never have in any other way. I tell people that, you know, our human relationships, like if someone's with us when some great tragedy strikes or, you know, some difficulty, you know, occurs, right? A, a friend shared with me that uh, he was with some casual friend when he got the phone call that his mother died unexpectedly. To this day, he says, that person is one of my closest friends because of that one situation, that one moment where that absolutely just earth-shaking news was given to him. And, and if we can understand our human relationships, then we realize that when we suffer, we can be united with Christ in an intimacy and a closeness that nothing else can give us. We have a deeper relationship with him that sometimes we can't even explain ourselves. And it's our understanding of salvation drawn from the scriptures that allow even our suffering to be redemptive, that, that this natural evil, this moral evil, can actually become a tremendous good, redemptive even, in Christ for me, and then get this, <laughs> for our love, for my loved ones, and for the whole church. So I always tell people, um, you know, at Mass, like, when the priest says, pray, brothers and sisters, you know, and I remind people, this is like a command, an exhortation, pray, brothers and sisters, that my sacrifice and yours may be found acceptable to God, the Almighty Father, right? And the faithful respond, may the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands, the praise and the glory of his name for our good and the good of all his holy church. Well, that's it. That summarizes like everything we're describing here in terms of redemptive suffering, like for the praise and glory of God, for my good, the good of my family, my loved ones, the good of the whole church. And that becomes possible because of redemptive suffering. And, and as you're describing that, that's a richness that we find in biblical theology that we hear, um, that we see and, and, and hear echoed and played out in the course of our spiritual tradition. Yeah, and it's this this strange mystery, right, of joining our suffering to Christ. I, I mean, th- this always always confused me as as an evangelical. The idea that you know Paul says we can complete what was lacking in Christ's suffering. That that what a strange phrase that I don't think anybody I ever talked to could make sense out of that. But this, this idea that something in our in our suffering can be joined with Christ to to do something, right, right, Father? Yes, absolutely. And and, and just to, to run with that, and, and that particular passage from Colossians is is rich because it summarizes a lot of Paul's presentation of, of the Christian way of life. If we were to look at his apostolic letters, the one expression we find most in terms of Paul's teaching is a simple expression in Christ. Everything in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Good works by themselves, absolutely useless. Good works in Christ is actually a, is actually a continuation of his good work, right? So if I visit the sick in Christ, I continue the work of Christ visiting the sick, and so on. So this in Christ, in Christ, then we get to that Colossians verse to, to make up for what is lacking in Christ, in the body of Christ. Like, what, what's describing? So wait a minute, um, when I suffer... As a member of the baptized, I unite that with Christ. I'm united to him in his closeness, and Christ's sacrifice is perfect. He is perfect. I am not, but I'm now united with him. There's something lacking in me and by and, and, and the entire body of Christ, the, the church. And, and by uniting my sufferings with him, I'm a part, a participant in his work of making up for what is lacking. So my suffering me, one of 1.7 billion people on the planet, right? Me, my suffering suddenly have this eternal power in Christ that, I mean, 
it's speechless, right? And, and even ourselves have to process it, you know, but we're united with him and it, be, it has this power. And, 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 you know, some of us like to describe where, um, you know, we, please God, we get to paradise. And then, you know, St. Peter greets us and he says, okay, now you're in, um, we're going to head to the stadium. And if we go to the stadium and inside the, the stadium will be all the people that in some way, shape or form, uh, we helped get to heaven. And, you know, all the people there, are, ah, you made it, you know, so, you know, and, uh, and we're going to probably be shocked and say, well, what, 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 who are they? This, this tribe from Africa or something. What do you, you know? What? And to be told, well, remember when you were fighting cancer and you offered up the treatment for you know, the good of the whole church and so on. Well, that grace was applied to the preaching of the missionary that brought about the conversion of this tribe to the Lord. Right. And we're going to see the, the powerful connection we have to each other um, in the body of Christ and, and the, the connection, the closeness we have with Jesus Christ. And it's real. This is powerful. Uh, I mean, the, myth, the mystics tell us and, and you know, more contemporary spiritual masters tell us that the worst thing in the world is wasted suffering, just wasted suffering to suffer and to do nothing with it as a baptized Christian. It's a tremendous waste. <laughs> That's incredible and so well said. And what incredible food for thought. Wow. wow. What, what do you make of those those comments that some people bring with them when, they, when they're coming into the church, that, that baggage that says, well, you're suffering because you weren't praying hard enough or you weren't reading your Bible hard enough or you weren't being, being Christ-like enough. So that's why you're experiencing this suffering. Because I know a lot of us bring that baggage with us, that we've done, right. we've done something wrong, particularly in our spiritual life, and that's why we're, we're being punished like this or something. Right? What, what do you make of that? So if I can go maybe with a, with a broad answer um, on this, and that first I think what we can do is we can look for, you know, what uh, seeds of truth might be contained in that approach, right? Because we do have to acknowledge that there's temporal punishment. Like there are consequences to our sin. You know, so has someone to their actions or their sin brought this uh, suffering upon themselves or their loved ones, right? So, okay, well, you know, well, let's identify that and so on. You know. And with this understanding of suffering is a rich theology of you know, temporal punishment, which leads us to the whole question of indulgences from our older brothers and sisters, the saints, and so on. This is all beautifully connected, right? But, but beyond that, uh, I think that you know, we go through the scriptures and, and you know, the apostles asked Jesus when they saw a blind man, like, is it because of his sins or the sins of his parents, right? And the Lord gave a definitive answer like that, that this is because of neither, right? Like, um, that we were just missing the boat here, that the question was, was misplaced. You know? And I think so by going back to biblical wisdom and saying, look, we, we have a God who is all good. We are his children. He desires nothing but good for us. Uh, and, and all the suffering that, that happens, which I try to develop in the manual, um, in terms of the fall, right? I mean, this is all things that we have chosen, right? We have done, right? But God is the one who's constantly seeking in order to bring forth good from the evil that we've introduced to the world. And is constantly seeking to, to do good things for us. I mean, 
grace is literally divine favor, right? You know, so it's you know, you you can imagine like you know if you had a bunch of children who took over a playground and just turned it into a wasteland, and and the you know the parent is there trying to you know introduce good things in the midst of regaining this playground, right? And uh, and yet you know the children are are somehow blaming the parent you know for what they have done to the playground. The parent continues to attempt you know to to try to help and. And then the you know the, the child says, "Well, this is because I didn't pray enough, or didn't you know um, didn't believe enough, you know." And, and you can imagine the parents saying, "No, like you didn't trust enough, right? like you, you didn't rely on my grace enough, right? Like we can fix this, right?" So take the example for how it might help or not, but you know we've created a fallen world. This is not the world God wanted for us. Like I tell people, look, when you lose a loved one, and there's that response of, "This isn't right." This isn't right. This doesn't feel. There's something just existentially just, you know, disillusioning and, and, and unsettling about this, right? It's like, exactly, exactly. Because we were never meant to die. Right? We were never meant to die. Like, our bodies were supposed to share the immortality of our souls. That's how God wanted this. Uh, St. Paul reminds us, but the wages of sin, like the wages, the cost of sin, like is death. Right? We did this, right? And at any point, we can turn to his grace so that he can bring healing from brokenness and bring forth good from evil. So rather than blaming God or misplacing uh, authentic accountability by saying some of we didn't pray enough or believe enough, I think it's just uh, one more fallen exercise in narcissism that does no good. Yeah, that's very well said, Father. It's that turning in, right? That looking, yeah. Yeah, that, that 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 narcissism. That's really interesting. What what's the connection between suffering and evil? Because this is often seen as these things go hand in hand, and I don't think they necessarily always do in that sense. There's certainly a connection, as you've laid out here, between free will and suffering, because you know we're choosing we're choosing a choice that maybe leads us away from God, and and we're suffering as a result. But what is the connection between evil and suffering? Because this is again. One of those, you know, big big questions, and I think I was thinking of this actually uh, on the on the drive to work this morning, thinking about what I would talk to you about, and I thought, isn't it funny that every generation kind of thinks they've reinvented this question of of why why do I suffer or what is evil, when really this question comes from the very beginning of time, but we we seem to think we have this hubris, we seem to think that every generation we're reinventing this. You know, you have the those new atheists come along, oh they're suffering, it's terrible, this is. Like, this isn't a new problem. This has been a problem we've been asking and answering since the dawn of time, right? So yes. what is that connection between evil and and suffering? Yes, yes. So if we can look at the word evil, so oftentimes when we hear evil, uh, understandably, we think of moral evil. So uh, some good was violated or some harm was inflicted upon ourselves or another, right? So, so moral evil. When we speak about evil in the broader sense, uh, evil is, is can almost be seen as a synonym for, for fallenness. So we speak about natural evils. So a pandemic is a natural evil. An earthquake is a natural evil. And in this context, again, we're just describing a fallenness. So there is a connection between evil and, and suffering, but evil has to be understood in, in a more holistic yeah. way. So... Uh, because evil is not simply in the moral realm. Evil can be in the spiritual realm. It could be uh, in, in, in a way that definitely needs some development and understanding in the natural realm. Right? Remember, you know, first studying theology and, and hearing about, you know, uh, 
hurricane or something being a natural evil. What? How can it be evil? It doesn't have volition. Right? I mean, it doesn't have a choice. Right? You're, the hurricane doesn't sit there and say, I think it'll be a good hurricane. <laughs> you, know I mean? right? you know, how can this be evil? But then to realize, oh, in this context, uh, evil means uh, the fallenness of, of the world, that, that there is something good that um, that God desired, existentially good, right? So far beyond the moral realm, but it's existentially good that is lacking or not present. And so I think that uh, understanding suffering in that context is, is helpful. And, that, and as you said, that, that, that leads us back to the beginning. Uh, I think the whole, the whole reality and the consequence of the fall, we have almost universally forgotten, including theology, right? So uh, I remember years ago, sitting with an eminent theologian, uh, whom I still greatly respect, but because completely dismissive of the church's teachings on the early world, so we call protology, right? Completely dismissive. And and, and honestly, I, I could not understand, because if, if we remove the fall, right, and we don't understand the natural good, the, the first inheritance that God wanted for us, and we remove that, well then... Well, then we, we, we've changed the entire understanding of salvation history. We've changed the entire basis of theology because now, well, wait a minute, then how do we understand this, right? And then, of course, what we're ultimately led to is almost a type of Calvinism where, you know, human nature is defined by its evil, right? So, for example, when people say, you know, someone lies or something and, and someone will say, oh, well, you know, he's only human. So, no, 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 don't do that to our human nature, right? No, he's you know, a fallen human being, right? He shares in fallen humanity. Right? That's not humanity. Humanity at its best, it does not lie. Humanity at its best is, in, is, is a reflection of integrity, right? And that's something we're given by our understanding of, of the early world, of, of pathology, that we are good. We're not defined by our sin. To say, look, someone say, oh, look, he cheats on his wife, he looks at porn, he lies, so yeah, you know, he, he's, you know, he's only human. No, 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 sin, sin is a privation, sin has taken away the goodness, it's taken away our being, right, so St. Paul on the opposite side would say that in Christ, he came to truly know who he was, right, like that he understands who he himself, he, who he, Paul is, only in Christ, so I think that we have to come back to a real broader understanding of, of suffering, evil, and especially the early world of, of our first parents and the consequences of the fall. Yeah, I like that framing of it—the fallen world versus these evils, right? That 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 definitely changes the the set of the stage. What do you, this is maybe a bit of an aside, but I get this question when I when I teach classes to new Catholics every time: the, the idea that how can how can God, I don't know, curse all of us for the choice of two people, right? How how yeah. could the fall? This is maybe a silly question or too broad of a question, but how could the fall have happened like that? That then these two guys chose, and then look at we're all we're all like we're all sunk as a result. How do we how do we make sense of that in our practical actual you know lives as we live them out? Yes, yes, and and I think that's a great question. And some of the early fathers wrestled with that themselves. And, and actually, Saint Ambrose, who was the mentor of Saint Augustine, uh, gave us probably one of the clearer answers which is that our first parents were not simply uh, two children of God, but were um, the head of human nature. We could say a type of uh, prototype of human nature. 
And with, by their personal sin, not only did they sin in a personal manner against God their Father, but they sinned as the holders of our nature. So our nature fell because they were the first. And so this fall is now, this original sin is, is passed on to us. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church makes the point of distinguishing original sin from even what our tradition calls actual sin. It's kind of funny, they actually call it actual sin, right? <laughs> So to, to distinguish it from original sin, because original sin is more of a condition of fallenness, because we no longer have these extra blessings or sanctifying grace that God desires to give us. We have to now receive them through the sacraments because of the saving work of Jesus Christ, but we don't have them anymore. So our original sin is more, we can understand, a, a state of fallenness, that the original inheritance God wanted to give us was not given. So it's not, it, it should not be seen as if it's an actual sin. Sometimes when I hear catechesis, and I understand it, it's difficult to describe, but you know, people will say it's as if it were an actual sin on the soul, like say for a baby who's preparing for baptism. Uh, it's like, no, that's, that's really not how the church explains this. It's more like the condition of fallenness that our nature itself is wounded, right? It's still good, but wounded. And so this continues to be passed down to all the children of Adam and Eve because the nature was at its beginning, uh, and as the prototypes, uh, that you know, their fall is something we share in. Now, I'll say this: that well, obviously the consequences are not very favorable. <laughs> what I appreciate is that definitely shows our unity as a human family. So, you know, when I see you know, children starving, you know, in Asia or children starving in in you know, the the poverty areas of our, of our own country, of like North America, United States, Canada, and so on. Like, you know, I understand like these are states of fallenness that the whole of humanity shares. Right? That, that if there's nothing else that unites us, and there can be far more, such as the grace of God, the salvation offered to us in Jesus Christ. But if nothing else, the first source of unity is precisely the fact that we share this fallen state. And if we understood that, and really rallied the cause, I think we could do tremendous good. So, borrowing from the early fathers and, and from St. Ambrose especially, um, it's because they're our parents, and they were the holders of our nature, and we are bound to them and to each other, and therefore we are bound to the fall. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And I love that idea of what of what binds us as a human race. That's that's so important if we could recognize that. Everybody, every culture across the whole world is, is bound by that. Right? We talk about... We talk about human rights uh, in the sense of these universal rights that, of course, are very, very Christian in their in their roots. But th- these these human rights and privileges that that bind us together. But how much more powerful would it be to talk about that 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 fallenness, that kind of the, the suffering that that binds us all together? I mean, I think that's pretty incredible to know that you you can see you can see suffering across the world and know that we're all bound up in that same kind of thing that should be, especially for us as Catholics, something that really moves us to, to greater unity, right? Yes. And greater compassion yes. and understanding. Yes. And those who have been blessed with, with um, resources and talents and wealth to realize the responsibility that they have uh, to those within the human family who do not have those blessings so I think it affects every aspect of our theology and helps us to understand how the fall really becomes the, the stage upon which 
the Paschal mystery of the Lord Jesus, his passion, death, and resurrection plays itself out. John Paul II at one point even made that kind of bold statement that we cannot fully understand the Paschal mystery if we do not understand the fall. Yeah. And, and one of the points he made was this universality of the human family that we see in the fall, that we all suffer, and we all endure the evils of this world. Uh, we all must walk through the fallenness of, of the world around us. And we have the opportunity of doing that together because I can understand. So I can look at someone whose language I don't even know, whose culture I don't even know, who worships God in a completely different way than I could ever understand. And yet they've lost someone or they're fighting cancer or they have heart disease or whatever it might be. And as a human being, I understand that, even though I don't know anything else about the particulars of this other human being. I know, and that becomes far more existential, far more powerful, that I know what this other person uh, is, is going through. I, I, can, I can empathize, I can relate, uh, you know, not in, of course, the specifics in terms of their own approach, but there's an empathy I'm able to have that we can have for one another. So I, I think that's, you, you can see just the beauty of, of understanding the, all the different parts of salvation history and I think that part right there, we've really, we've eclipsed and we've kind of lost it, right? So, you know, the idea that the account of the fall is described, you know, uh, the figurative language of the book of Genesis, and, and the catechism makes it clear it's figurative language, right? You know, that people describe or think that the fall happens because some snake, talking snake, convinced a naked woman <laughs> to eat a piece of fruit or something, right? It's like, you know, it's first of all, it's not fair to the figurative language, uh, nor uh, to the actual event that happened, right? So to really dive into the, into that and say, you know, what really happened, if I could summarize it in this fashion, it's, it's as if there was a beautiful temple, completely beautiful, ornate, splendid, um, dazzling in its majesty. And someone walked into that palace with a grenade and the grenade goes off and the walls sustained a blast. But everything in that temple is in complete disarray and chaos. Nothing is where it's supposed to be, right? It's all over the place. That's what original sin did to, the, to human nature and to material creation, right? We are still good. The walls withstood the blast, but it is complete in complete disarray. And what heals that is grace, the grace given to us in Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's fantastic. Not that the bomb went off, but I love the... I love the description. That's just fantastic. Yeah, it brings it home to you, doesn't it? Yeah. It's like, wow. It, yes. It it does, yeah, because the, that's a picture of that, that chaos, that that destruction and that chaos. And it the, the, it's still standing, but everything is in, in disarray, of course. I like what you emphasize, because this, too, is some of the baggage that people might bring to the Catholic faith from other faith traditions, that we are we are good, Father, right? Because I was certainly taught that I'm not good, that I'm evil by nature, I'm, I'm, I'm corrupt by nature. Uh, this came out of the Pentecostal tradition and, and you know, crept in from different theologians that I read and things I picked up as I was going along my journey. But I was pretty much convinced that I was, you know, my, my sin is, is, a, is bad, a bad state, and that was my default yeah. state. And when I, when I began looking into the Catholic Church and reading Catholic theologians, I was kind of surprised and, and excited to discover that I wasn't, the church doesn't teach that I am in my default position, this evil, terrible, wretched sinner, but that I 
might be okay. <laughs> I know. I know. Even when um, you know teaching young children, uh, their catechism. Um, you know, I, I always like to give children buzzwords. They have an amazing ability to to remember buzzwords and 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 the story. Oftentimes, that that goes behind them. And just teaching children like the, the three simple words that summarize the whole of salvation history. So let me be bold enough to say there's three words that summarize summarize summarizes the whole of salvation history, right? And those three words would be simply good, fallen, redeemed. And we have to be able to walk through each one and understand God has made us good. Yeah. Our sin has no power over the action of God. We are made good. In fact, we know we're good because the Lord redeemed us. Right? You can't redeem what is gone or lost. right? So he has redeemed our goodness. He has restored us uh, as the children of God our Father. So we are good. And, and similar to what I was, I was describing earlier, like if we don't start with that, then the foundation is lost, and, and that's you can't have redemptive suffering. You, you can't have intrinsic salvation. You, you really, in many respects, lose any real exercise of freedom given to us in Jesus Christ. So, no, we, we are good. We're fallen. The, the temple is in disarray. Right? Our souls are all over the place. The material world is all over the place. That's why we have tsunamis and pandemics and hurricanes and so on. And there's great loss and so on. There's, there's, there's discord, discord and, and chaos. But... So that fallenness, but it can be redeemed. Right? So uh, we have some control over this. The Lord will allow the consequences of the fall to play themselves out. Why? And so someone could say, well, if, if the Lord came and he saved us, right, there's redemption. Right? Then why do we still suffer the consequences of the fall? It's a great question. And actually the church has an answer. God has given an answer. And the answer is that the Lord says to us to, to follow him, right? to, to walk through what our pious tradition calls the Valley of Tears. So it's easy to say, yeah, sure, I love God, I'll do, I'll do whatever he wants, right? But then suddenly the freedom is given and the invitation of love is offered. Right? So our first parents, they had to have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There had to be a choice, otherwise there couldn't be love. And one of the reasons why there are still the consequences of the fall in our world, so why we get sick, why we can't remember things, why we have to learn things, why our passions wage war against reason and so on. All these battles that we have now in our fallen state, the reason why these happen is because we accept the Lordship of Christ, we know the power of His grace, and we battle and fight with Him, carrying our cross through the valley of tears in order then, please God, to be with Him forever and eternity. And that's that's it. Like There's the freedom. Because... When I suffer, I find out what I really believe, whether I'm really going to love. So it's easy to say I love Jesus. I love Jesus when money is all there and health is good and relationships are all stable. But take all that away and then suddenly are you still going to follow the Lord? Right? Or when a hurricane comes and causes massive damage or a pandemic strikes and, and suddenly there's financial woes and so on. Right? Are you still going to follow Christ? So the consequences of the fall are still there. Because in many respects, they are the purifying element that shows where our love really stands and whether we will truly follow Christ. It's not an easy path. I tell people, look, <laughs> Jesus didn't say pick up your lawn chair or your lazy boy and come follow me. Right? He loves us. He speaks the truth. And he said, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and come follow me. 
and the consequences of the fall are one way in which we pick up the cross and walk through it. And we say, Lord, I'll follow you. Like everything, all my whole life is falling apart. I don't understand anything. As we were describing earlier, the state of complete vulnerability. But I know that you're with me, and please just help me. I will follow as best I can. Lord, I believe, help me unbelieve. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. That's fantastic. What can we say when suffering happens? Because this is like, you know, boots on the ground when something bad happens to us. It sometimes feels, the question, you know, the question in, in my mind is, okay, did God make this happen to me or did God allow this to happen to me? And what do I do with it? I think we know that answer pretty well now. We, we It shapes us, informs us, and teaches us, and we embrace that in, in, in prayer and embrace that suffering. But on the first question, how can we understand the idea of, because I think there's, I think it's an important question. Does God allow suffering, or does He He cause suffering, or how do we wrestle with that? Yes, yes. So good. So, and, and I'm I'm grateful for that question. Um, and you know, this what I'm grateful about this entire conversation. You're raising questions that are real questions. Like these are people. These are things that pass through people's minds and hearts. And and oftentimes, for some reason, along the way, it stopped being a part of the conversation at the church. And, and this is our conversation. This, this is one area where the Christian faith can really shine, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. in terms of, of providing an answer to these questions. So, you know, when, when someone says, you know, well, uh, does God permit suffering? How can an all-powerful, all-good God permit evil and suffering in our world today, right? So first we go to God's providence, and, and that's his fatherly care for us. So we know God loves us. We know that his, he has a plan. We know that his plan is good. We know that uh, he desires what is best for us, his providence. It pervades all things. So immediately one can ask, well, then wait a minute. If his providence pervades everything and he's good, then how can there be evil or suffering? The way we understand that is uh, the gifts of human freedom. So, again, we have early consequences from the fall in terms of natural evils. But oftentimes the moral evils are the ones that can disturb us, right? So it's, you know, okay, I can endure the fact that a hurricane just hit but I don't understand why my neighbor just stole my last, you know, groceries or something, right? It's the moral evil that oftentimes disillusions us right, from ourselves or from our neighbors. So how do we understand that? How does God's providence allow for this evil? And of course, it's the introduction of freedom, that God truly gives us the capacity for freedom, and he allows freedom to be exercised even when evil is chosen. And what he does is he allows in his providence, we call it his permissive will. So he doesn't actively desire it, he permits it, his permissive will. And he does this so that a greater good can be brought forth. We see this ultimately in Calvary. He allows this evil of his son to be brutally tortured, crucified, to die, this evil, in order that the immense, the infinite, the, the sublime good can be brought forth, which is our redemption. So in a similar fashion, we see this played out in our life. When there's an evil permitted, if we cooperate with grace, a greater good can be brought forth, a good that we cannot ourselves come up with or, or construct. Uh, to, to give an example, uh, Venerable Fulton Sheen describes it in this way. So imagine you have a conductor who's a master conductor, and he's leading the piece of music. And then all of a sudden, someone makes a mistake. Now, he has a couple options. He can ignore it, but then he wouldn't be a very good conductor. Right? He can stop the entire piece. That's it. Stop. Done. It's over. Right? And, and, and he could do that. Right? Or if he's really a master, 
he can use the first mistake, the misnote, to start an entirely new piece of music that becomes a new work. So Venerable Fulton gives that example. So that's exactly what God does, obviously, in the, the original sin, the fall of our first parents. But that's what he does in the sins of every one of his children, that he allows, by his grace, the capacity for a greater good to be brought forth from the evil. But he permits the evil because it's the evil we've chosen. Yeah, I, I think that's fabulous. And I want to—I was thinking, too, of the closeness of God when we are suffering. So God allows something to happen to us that isn't isn't great, right? Something happens to us. Right? I'm, I'm thinking of, say, somebody—, somebody uh, treats us poorly or, or steals something from us or, or, or breaks our heart or something like that, Father. And you know, everyone's been a everyone's been a high in high school at some point in their lives and had their had their heart broken, I'm sure, right? And you think of why why does this happen to me? And 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 we go through more serious suffering, like illnesses and these things. The closeness of God always strikes me in those situations. And I, I think I'm thinking of Frank Sheed when I think of the idea that he talks about you know, God is almost as close to us as water is when we're swimming, right? We're we're swimming in that water. That's kind of the closeness of you. You can't separate yourself from the, from the water. It's just it's it's all around you. It pervades everything, every aspect of you. And I've always taken that picture of God. I think I think it comes from one of one of his books to enlighten my understanding of suffering. Because yes, there's there's suffering. There's bad things happen to us, but. Look how close God is to us in in those moments, yeah. right? Yes, Amen, Amen. Um, summarizing Saint John of the Cross, uh, you know, he taught that God does not get between ourselves and suffering, so that nothing can get between Himself and us. So again, that that role of suffering, where both as as teacher, but also as as the source of, of a closeness that nothing else can give us, because. When everything else is lost and we don't understand anything, and all of our answers have imploded, uh, suddenly we cling to Christ in a way that we could not have before. Right? Let me give you a story, uh, an experience I had some years ago that, that really kind of shaped my own understanding. Uh, I was able to um, be the chaplain of a group of young men who went on a pilgrimage to uh, Italy and then Vienna and then uh, into uh, parts of Poland and one of the stops was Auschwitz, uh, the death camp, and there was a survivor that uh, it was arranged for the young people to have this meeting with him. So uh, he was speaking with us through a, a translator, and one of the young men uh, was very happy. He asked the survivor, um, did you ever uh, lose your faith while you were in the camp? And the survivor his reaction, his, 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 his visible reaction was, was itself the first answer. And of course, we had to wait for the translator to give us uh, the answer um, that he was providing. Um, and, and as it was being translated, um, the survivor was saying to us, like, you know, lose my faith in God. Lose my faith in God. He said, God didn't open Auschwitz. He's like, lose my faith in God. He goes, God was the only thing I had to get me through Auschwitz. <laughs> he goes, if anything, Auschwitz made me lose my faith in man. Right? <laughs> you know? and, and it just kind of like, just kind of blew my mind. And I thought, man, this guy, and just describing this, this experience in his own life, this hell on earth, was summarizing in a very casual way um, 
in, in, in an um, technical way, uh, the real depths of, of the church's teachings in terms of suffering and redemptive suffering. You know, that why, you know, don't blame God for what we have done. Like, God is the one who gets us through this. You know, so I think as we look at the moral evil in ourselves or in others, and, and there can be real suffering when we see evil in our own hearts, what we've done, you know, someone breaks a confidence or someone, you know, whatever, you know, fallenness we find in our own hearts. So it can be the dismay we have in our own fallenness or, or in that of others where we, you know, we have hurt or harm from another. And, and there's this almost fallen tendency it is a fallen tendency uh, to blame God or to create God, you know, to compose this caricature of God, you know, that will keep him at bay. So if you look at Genesis, like our first parents, you know, after the fall, uh, they hide, like they hide from him, right? You know, I mean, the scriptures say he comes to them and he wants to walk with them in the breeze of the evening. Anyone who knows Mediterranean culture, like that's family time. You walk together, right? In Italy, uh, you know, when I was in Italy as a priest, the passeggiata was a family action in the evening. You walk together and have your gelato, and everyone spends time together, right? God comes in the breeze of the evening. He wants to walk with his children, and they're hiding from him. And then when he calls out to them, they say, well, you know, we, we, we are naked and, and, and so on, and, and they're suddenly ashamed. Right? So you know, God now has become a threat, someone that they should be afraid of someone who has caused shame for them, right? And, and that's the, the, the complete opposite of, of, of God. And yet we do that in our own fallenness, right? So we want to blame God. We want to turn him into this monster. He's the one who's done this. Why didn't he fix it? Why did he allow this to happen and so on? And it's like, wait a minute. Like, you know, there's some questions on natural evil that have answers theologically, but when it comes to moral evil, um, I think of that survivor's comment, like God didn't open Auschwitz. <laughs> you, know, like, you know, and that if anything, it gave him a suspicion or distrust of humanity. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. One of the things mentioned earlier on in this episode is is uh, you know the the response to evil and and this idea I I, I love from from Saint Paul the idea that we don't always know what to pray, but our our our, our soul fills that in, right? Or, or God God hears us despite not using the words, and there is that very kind of soul-rending prayer that we often pray when we're suffering and, and can't find the words. But there also also are words of the great saints who came before us that we also can pray. And I was I was one of those uh, uh, Pentecostal kids growing up in high school that went to a church where the Lord's Prayer was off limits because that was vain repetition. So we would we were very we were very uh, closed-minded in terms of what prayers we could pray. We were very careful not to make our prayers into idols and to not re- repeat things and to, to a very extreme point, as, as you can tell. But so the prayers, the words of saints, would never have occurred to me to be something that we ever would want to repeat or, or, or pray. But you find in so many of the saints these prayers that are like that groaning of the heart. They're putting those words into your mouth that you didn't know you you needed or, or couldn't say or didn't have, but here they are, and and it just you know it, it elevates that prayer in a way that you couldn't you couldn't on your own. So can we talk for a, a minute about the the beauty of some of those rote prayers when it comes to to suffering? 
yes, amen. And, and you know, if, if we think about it, you know, the times when we've suffered, you know, it's oftentimes like the, the spiritual energy to pray spontaneously. Uh, you know, sometimes it's, 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 we, we want to, it's just, it's just not there. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, you know and, and so in, in this situation, like, you know, the gift of these tra- these prayers in our tradition uh, are, are, are a great gift. That, because, you know, to, to pick up the book of Psalms and to pray the, you know, a psalm and say, yes, I guess, Lord, that, that is what I want to say to you. Like, I, 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 I don't have the words right now. I, I don't have, I, I can't even bring this all together, you know, like, but, but this, like, to, to pray this psalm, this is what I want to say to you, Lord, right? I think it's a tremendous gift. I mean, this is why in the scriptures we have a collection of the book of Psalms, right? And of course, the prayers that we find uh, in other parts of, 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 the, of the scriptures. Uh, I think of the, the canticles of all the various holy women, the, the canticle of Judith, who I particularly like, the, the righteous widow, you know, or the canticle of, of Hannah and so on, right? So we have throughout our tradition in the scriptures themselves and then, you know, within the, the ascetical tradition, uh, these beautiful prayers. And, and I, I just... I think there's a reason why God has given them to us. And I think very much that we're called to use them because I've been with people who have, you know, are suffering and, and, and cannot, and to say, well, you know, here are the book of Psalms and then to visit them sometime later. And they say, <laughs> as if I wrote the book of Psalms, right? <laughs> you know, they're like, you know, they're like, they go, Father, that was so helpful. That was so great. Like, that's exactly what I needed. So, well, that's, that's the power of the word of God. Right. So, so I think that we have these uh, beautiful prayers in, in the scriptures, and then from uh, the scriptures, you know, we have, of course, the wisdom and, and the holiness and the prayers of, of our holy ones, like the saints. So, uh, which I especially also want to hold on to because, you know, again, we just see that that wisdom, that closeness um, in these prayers. Now, I would caution that, you know, we shouldn't say prayers that um, we we either don't agree with or we're not trying to get to. So, um, you know, some, for some Catholics, when they describe prayer, it's like they're, they're still kind of stuck in this like second or fourth grade notion of praying. Yeah. And they say these pious prayers and, you know, it's like, they're like, they're showing up for like theater class and it's like <laughs> check and God's happy. He's appeased. Right. Um, but the idea of like really just using these prayers to express what's in our heart or, or to say, that's where I want to get, right. Or as the springboard. As, as you describe, like I mean, Saint Paul says, this, the, the Spirit prays through us. And sometimes we start with this said prayer, and then our heart, you know, just just goes. And you know, I think it's interesting that the first recorded prayer of the great patriarch Abraham, Genesis 15, is he's complaining, <laughs> like he's complaining to God uh, about why is it taking him so long? Why is why is God delaying and, and answering, um, fulfilling His promises? So. I think that there's a place for them. Of course, the, the whole second part of, of the manual is a collection of that biblical wisdom, uh, teachings from the church, uh, wisdom from the saints, and then some really powerful litanies and novenas and prayers uh, that I think are tremendously helpful. Uh, one prayer that's in, in the, in the uh, manual that uh, in my parish is very popular uh, is the litany to St. Diphna who is the patron saint of those who are fighting depression yeah. or other emotional or mental challenges. Uh, that's, that is widespread in our society, even before the pandemic. But the pandemic has not helped that at all. And there's this added misplaced sense of shame. So people don't want to talk about it. 
Uh, but that's in there among many others that that are given to us by the Holy Spirit in order to help us to pray. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. And let's talk about this, this manual because I opened the front cover of this and the first thing that I see is who's is presented to name and date uh, slash occasion and personal note. And I thought... Gosh, who might, who would I think of to give an, a manual of, of suffering to? <laughs> what a, what an interesting present and what an interesting occasion to give it to them. So, but obviously there's intention behind that, and of course this is a, a thing that somebody would would want to use. It's a manual, as as you call it. Tell us a bit more about the genesis of this of this book and and who you would give it to, and on, on what occasion it might be given. Yeah. Yes. But I think, you know, we, we Catholics are crazy enough that we teach second graders uh, when they learn their, their uh, Hail Mary uh, to pray uh, that, that Our Lady would pray for them now at the hour of our death. So if you imagine, the, you know, to the, to the unbeliever who hears that we teach yeah. children, you know, some seven years old to, to, to think about the hour of their death and to ask Our Lady's intercession. So um, I think that there's, there's a lot of opportunities um, for the manual. <laughs> But in terms of it, its genesis, um, so during the pandemic, um, there were a lot of really hard questions, some of which we, we've discussed uh, on the show today. And, and the, the real difficulty in terms of the questions, whether people were leaving the church or abandoning the Christian faith, um, you know, one person said that, that his the suffering of the pandemic upon his family, uh, not just simply the pandemic itself, but the financial difficulties, the the strain on on marriage and family and, and all the things that go with that. He said to me, I, the only thing that that led him to realize was that the Catholic Church was nothing but a bunch of bullcrap, wow. right? And uh, and this was someone of, of, of deep faith, and I wanted to sit down and talk with this. So we, we saw, in many respects for the West, a real uh, opportunity to go deeper in terms of redemptive suffering. You know, when we look at the West... And, and I don't say this, um, you know, in, in raw judgment, but, but, you know, with the hopes that by observing it, we might change. But in the West, we have become very comfortable. And in many respects, uh, the universal church looks at us and they don't understand what we've done with our faith. Right? What have we done uh, to our shared Christian faith? Because you go to Africa, Latin America, Asia, uh, to pronounce and declare Jesus Christ as Lord could mean your life, you know, so... Uh, in my parish, in a couple of months, we're going to welcome two Nigerian sisters here to our staff, and everyone in their families have either died martyrs or have been, are confessors of the faith. Wow. Right? You go to Nigeria, you go to Mass, someone can burn the church down or come with machetes. Every time you go to Mass, you know that could mean your life, and yet they go because that's what it means to be a Christian. So they look at the West, and they don't understand what have the Westerners done with our shared faith. And, and it's a question we Westerners need to ask of ourselves that the pandemic presented the opportunity. So all these questions came and challenges. I can't believe in a God that would allow this. I feel so abandoned, uh, you know, and, and all these types of questions. Like, wait a minute, as Christians, like, again, we should be thriving. Like, plagues are our thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, historically, I mean, this is where, like, you know, we Christians have, have shined. So, anyway, just raised a lot of questions passionately in terms of, of how can I provide guidance. So, I started using homilies in order to preach about redemptive suffering. And then from meetings and pastoral sessions that, that you know, followed from that. And eventually, all this kind of came together in, in this body of teachings. And, 
honestly, I looked for something like this manual as a pastor. Like, I need to give this out to my parish. I need to make sure they understand like, that you know there are answers to these questions and 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 what it means to have faith and to exercise faith. Like, faith is only really faith when it's the only thing you have, right? It's not faith plus, you know? And so really that's what gave birth to this manual was the, was the development of these homilies and different talks I gave on redemptive suffering and then the, the awareness that, well, maybe this, you know, this collection of teachings can serve a greater good beyond my parish. And I didn't just want to give, you know, the teaching on redemptive suffering without resources. So the, the publisher and I spoke and I said, I really want to make sure that we provide the resources, right? So, and they were in complete agreement. Um, you know, I'm grateful for 10 books. And that's why that second whole part is like the means in order to do it, right? Like say, I will carry my cross. I will love the Lord in the midst of this valley of tears and to have the resources to do it. So that's some of the story that brought all this together and, we now have this manual for suffering. And even I look at it and sermon, I look at it, oh, this is really beautiful. I can't believe this is actually something I did. Do you know what I mean? So, so yes, I hope it does good and helps Western Christians to understand some of the basics of the Christian faith. Yeah. Once again. Yeah, I think so. It's, it is beautiful. I think it's going to be an instant classic. Just looking at it, it's so wonderful to look at and to behold. And I think so useful, as you say. So, Father, where can people go to, to, to get their hands on this, to learn more about you. Uh, I've had you on the show before, so they, I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes uh, for this show too, but where else do you want to point them towards to resources like like this and other things uh, that you have? Yeah, so I would um, direct them to, uh, so the, the manual is uh, from St. Benedict Press, Handbooks, uh, also it's available on Amazon, uh, and my website, frkirby.com, and I'm on Twitter, the handler, Father Kirby, and I'm on a, I have a Patreon show on Wednesday nights, so kind of do a little Q&A and have some fun with that. So so a few opportunities if people want to continue to connect and, and find more resources. Those are some of the ways. That's fantastic. Uh, Father, a great big thank you for your time today. It's always a pleasure. It was last time. It was this time again. Uh, fun to talk to you about suffering. I don't know how that works out, but it's a, it's a <laughs> great topic and a lot of fun. So thank you so much. And I want to say God bless uh, you, Father, and your vocation, and your ministry, and this fantastic work in, in helping us to, to understand suffering and how that works in our lives and our faith and help us to grow and, and, and flourish in our, uh, in our faith. So thank you. Thank you, Father. My pleasure. Thank you for this opportunity. God bless you. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, friends, there you have it, my episode with Father Jeffrey Kirby on how to suffer like a Catholic. I thought it was a lot of fun, which is kind of a strange thing for a show about suffering, but but there you have it. There you go. Hopefully you enjoyed that. Check out his book in the show notes. It really is a gorgeous little book. It's kind of hard to describe, but little faux leather cover and gold gilded pages, little, little bookmark. It feels like an, an instant classic manual for suffering. It, it really does. It's, it's wonderful. So check out the show notes for this show here down below on the in your podcatching app to have a look at that fantastic book. 
TheCordialCatholic.com is our website. CordialCatholic at gmail.com is our email address. Please do reach out. Let me know who you are, where you're listening from, and why or why you continue to listen week after week. I love hearing from you guys, so please do reach out if you feel so compelled. I love your questions. I love to interact with you guys. It's, it's a lot of fun. We're at Cordial Catholic on Twitter and Instagram, The Cordial Catholic on Facebook, and YouTube.com slash The Cordial Catholic to watch what you are hearing. Every single week, we release our new episodes on YouTube as well. It's a great place to go. Do subscribe to that channel and, and like those videos, and that pushes the, the, the show out to more people. Patreon.com slash Cordial Catholic or PayPal.me slash Cordial Catholic to support this show. Uh, head over to Patreon too to see our different perks and things that I try and give back as a result, uh, or, or for those who sponsor the show, little things to say thank you. And uh, yeah, check that out. Guys, know that I'm praying for you. Please pray for me and I'll talk to you again next week. Thanks for listening, guys. Tell a friend. Take care and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordial A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.